Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 2. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to perceive in this passage the truth that it contains and that you would enable us to perceive how that truth relates to us, what we need to know, what we need to stop doing, what we need to start doing, where we need to be comforted and encouraged. Lord, we ask that you would distribute from your word to every heart that is here, to those who are following along from home, to those who may listen afterwards, Lord. Under whatever circumstance, your word comes to people today. We pray that it would come with your blessing. We pray that it would come with the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that it would point our hearts to Christ, and that we would rejoice in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the Lord Jesus was born, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent intensified. It's not that it started. We looked at Genesis 3.15 where God proclaims that there will be enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and his seed. 
And we've seen since then some instances of that conflict. We saw how it didn't take very long for that conflict to begin. It was there already in the generation after Adam and Eve. It was there in Cain and Abel. We saw how it was concentrated when a Baal worshiper was welcomed into the family of David and almost wiped out the royal lineage. And we've skipped over other places in the Bible where this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent was very evident. But today we come to another such instance, a very obvious instance. Here's the real. Here's the ultimate seed of the woman. Here is the person who was in view from Genesis 3.15. This person has been out of reach for the serpent and all the serpent's implements until this point. But now, you could understand from the serpent's point of view, it might almost seem like God had made a mistake. Now, at long last, God the Son is within reach. He can be struck at directly. And when these wise men who have seen a star, who have understood, perhaps from Balaam's prophecy, that this was a sign that the king of the Jews had come, they come seeking him and they go to one of the main tools of the serpent at that point in history, to Herod, who we call the Great, although certainly not for his actions in this chapter. At this point, Herod was somewhere around 70 years old. He died, I think it was in less than a year from when this massacre that we have read about took place. You might wonder what was a 70-year-old king worried about in a child less than two years old? Did he really think he was going to have a rival for the throne for whatever short amount of time he had left? But Herod at this point was not really a rational person. He killed a couple of his sons. He killed one of his wives. We're told that he killed the whole Jewish Sanhedrin. A massacre like this, which, given the size of the villages, maybe this was 20 children, somewhere thereabouts. But a massacre like this is completely in keeping with the character of Herod. It was utterly unnecessary. It didn't accomplish anything. He was dead long before the Lord Jesus would conceivably have posed any threat to his throne. It's hard to think that he cared about his dynasty, given that he was the one killing more of his children than anyone else. And yet, in his fury, in his rage, it's not enough to kill one. He's going to wipe out everybody in the whole district for good measure. If you don't see the seed of the serpent operating in Herod. We need to go back over our series. This is very, very clear. When Cain, the first seed of the serpent, acted, what did he do? He killed his brother. When Athaliah arose to seize power, what did she do? She destroyed her own grandchildren. What weapons does the serpent have? Well, the serpent basically has two weapons, lies 
and murder. Now, obviously, there's subcategories of lies, and you can think of forms of persecution or violence that don't quite reach up to murder. So it's lies and murder and everything leading up to them. But those are basically the serpent's tools. And that's what the Lord Jesus says about the devil. He says he was a liar. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. That's the character of the serpent. What did he do with Eve? He lied to her. By lying to her, what did he do? He murdered her. She brought death upon herself because she believed the serpent's lies. Adam also brought death upon himself. So the serpent has always been a liar and a murderer. And the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, among other things then, is always a conflict between truth versus lies, between life versus murder. Well, here we have Herod. What's his approach? Oh, find out where the child is so that I also may come and worship him. He's lying through his teeth. He has no intention of worshiping Christ. He has no intention of acknowledging God's design and the fulfillment of God's purposes. He plans to go and have that baby killed. That's his intention. That's his goal. And when he's frustrated in that targeted attack, he decides you know what, we'll just wipe out all the boys two years old and under. This doesn't mean necessarily that Jesus was close to two years old at this point. There's shades and differences of opinion here. Herod is just taking this number for good measure. If he gets two years old and down, he definitely gets the right age range. But you notice he doesn't say, well, spare the newborn, spare the people who were born yesterday. It can't be them. Wipe them all out. Herod and Herod's actions here reveal the true character of the serpent and of the serpent's seed. This is the war. This is the conflict. This is the spiritual battle that we continue to participate in to this day. And how can you identify the seed of the serpent? Well, lies and murder, those characteristic tools, go some way towards identifying Who belongs to whom? Now, this massacre was misplaced. It didn't get close to Jesus. Joseph had already gotten up in the night and packed up what they had, which was not much. But obviously adding the gifts of the wise men helped. And they had headed off to Egypt. You notice what's happened here. In the time of Moses, Egypt was the place of bondage. Egypt was the place where Moses and those in his generation were born under a sentence of death, where Pharaoh had proclaimed that all the males needed to be tossed into the river. There, the seed of the serpent was working through the Pharaoh of Egypt. But now, Egypt has become the place of refuge because the seed of the serpent has invaded the throne of Judea. Herod himself was... Idumean, he was from Edom, but he liked to pretend to be Jewish. He spent huge amounts of money on refurbishing the temple, and he was very strict about some of his religious practices. I don't know if this is accurate or not, or if it's one of those stories that gains circulation because it's too good not to be true, but supposedly Caesar said that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because Herod would not kill a pig. He wouldn't touch a pig. He wouldn't get near a pig. But he had no problem executing some of his children. 
the seed of the serpent, is sitting on the throne that belongs to David. And Egypt, where the seed of the woman was threatened, has now become the place of refuge. There's a couple of applications that we can draw from what we've seen so far. Of course, you see here the true character of evil. We are locked in a spiritual war, and the alternatives are not meaningless. It's not minor shades of difference. This isn't fighting over whether a carpet should be red or whether it should be purple. This spiritual war is life and death, very literally, eternal life and eternal death. Siding with the serpent, going along with the serpent is not a light matter. The true character of evil is seen in the actions of Herod. Well, we look around and we see actions similar to Herod's, undertaken by others and in other ways. What are we to conclude? We're to conclude that the seed of the serpent is still very active, aren't we? We're to conclude that there really is a difference. But moving on, the Lord Jesus was protected. There was divine warning for him, for his adoptive father. Joseph got them out. But then there was still a massacre. There was still a stroke. In a sense, for people who lived in Bethlehem or close by, the first reaction to the birth of Christ was not joy. It was sorrow. You might remember that God had said to Eve back in the Garden of Eden that he would greatly multiply her sorrow and her conception. And now even when the child of promise is born, even when the desire of nations has come, there was joy. You can hear the angels singing. You can hear the shepherds marveling. But there's also sorrow. You can hear the mothers of Bethlehem weeping. Their weeping extends all the way to Rachel's grave. And so Matthew sees in this event, in this massacre of these innocent children, he sees a fulfillment of something that Jeremiah had said long ago. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah is thinking about the reality that after the captivities, the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah, of course, there was a lot of family division. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of disruption. Specifically, when the Babylonians attacked Judah and conquered, they sort of brought together their Victims, those they had kidnapped, those who they were taking into exile, and they had a kind of a staging area in Ramah. And from there, they led them on. Well, that leads Jeremiah, in his poetic way, to think of Rachel. You remember Jacob's wife, who died giving birth to Benjamin. And when she gave birth to him, she called him Benoni, son of my sorrow. And his dad quickly changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel is buried close by, and Rachel is a figure of sorrow because of the circumstances of her death. She died giving birth, and as her last act, she called the little child who was born, son of my sorrow. So Rachel stands as a mother in Israel, but Rachel stands as a sorrowful, as a weeping, as a lamenting mother in Israel. So when calamity happens to her descendants, 
It's like Rachel gets out of her grave and resumes her weeping. That's the sort of poetic take on things that Jeremiah deploys in chapter 31. There, Rachel is weeping. She can't be comforted for her children because they're carried away into exile or they're dead. And now Matthew sees here in the weeping and wailing of the mothers of Bethlehem, Rachel has risen again from her grave, so to speak, poetically, and is weeping again. Now, there's a couple of things about that. One, of course, is just this reality, that sorrow, great sorrow, attended the birth of Christ. Now, that great sorrow was not Christ's fault. That was great sorrow was Herod's fault. But there was nonetheless great sorrow at the birth of Christ. And I think that is valuable to reflect upon for a couple of reasons. One, of course, we find in Christ our joy, our light, our comfort, our all, but not everybody does. There are those who find in Christ a stumbling block. There are those who find something to be hated and rejected, something to be feared and to be run away from. That's not Christ's fault. That's what they do with Christ, but it does happen. Christ himself said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. There was division. A sword pierced Mary's heart because of what happened to Christ. Being joined to Christ, being attached to Christ, being a follower of Christ is not the end of all sorrow. Certainly for those who stumble at him, in a sense you could say through their own fault, the coming of Christ actually makes things worse. Now that's, again, it's not Christ's fault because of their inappropriate reaction to him. Like Pharaoh made his judgments worse by hardening his heart against God's word. People make their judgment worse by rejecting Christ who came for salvation. But then we can also apply it to this reality. Sometimes we get this idea, we kind of lapse into the theology of Job's friends. If you're walking with God, if you know the Lord, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, then things are going to be smooth and rosy. Everything will be peachy keen. Would you tell that to the mothers of Bethlehem? I hope not. That's not the reality. Being joined to Christ we still encounter sorrow and distress. And how does Matthew regard that? Does he say, oh, those women, what were they wailing about? No, he sees their sorrow, he sees their wailing as part of a pattern that goes all the way back to the birth of Benjamin. And he says that it's all fulfilled in Christ. It's all fulfilled in these events that happen there. So there is another lesson for us there as well. On the one hand, we should expect sorrow. We shouldn't be scandalized by it. It shouldn't be a stumbling block. It shouldn't be something that trips us up and makes us say, what in the world is going on? I thought I believed in Jesus. Why am I having problems? Hello. (laughs) Read the circumstances of his birth. Tragedy accompanied him into the world. And do we think that because we believe in him, because we make a profession of faith, everything's going to be hunky-dory 100% of the time? That's not reality. And so that shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't rattle us. We should be prepared. We should be able to accept that. But then there is also an application. Matthew gives us a model. He doesn't scorn those who are weeping. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't set them straight. 
he sympathizes. He understands the reality of their sorrow, and he puts it in context. He doesn't invalidate it or negate it. There is a reality that there is joy in Christ that is deeper than any sorrow. There is a peace in Christ that is more real than any distress, than any tumult or turmoil. But that doesn't mean we have to be superficial, hard-hearted, indifferent to the weeping. If you had been one of these bereaved parents in Bethlehem, if you had been in one of these families impacted by Herod's outrageous cruelty, you would have wept. You would have lamented. You would have felt it deeply. And the hurt would not go away because you knew that Christ escaped. I'm not saying that wouldn't have helped, but it wouldn't have taken it away. There would still have been the sorrow. I had a two-year-old boy, and now I don't. That's a tragedy. That's a horrific loss. We can be compassionate to that kind of loss even as we understand that God is at work in all of this. Now, in the original context in Jeremiah, Matthew quotes a snippet, but there's more to the passage than what Matthew quotes. And I think Matthew does that on purpose because as he's talking about the fulfillment, he's going to go on to add something himself. So let me read to you from Jeremiah what was said After the voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more, what comes next? Jeremiah 31, 16. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. And then in Matthew chapter 2, he quotes the part about weeping and what comes next. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. What happened? The Lord Jesus returned from exile as Israel was captive in Egypt, so he had to hide in Egypt. But as God called his son, his chosen firstborn Israel, out of Egypt, so God called his only begotten son out of Egypt back to the land of promise. And in Christ, of course, there is hope. There is a future For even those children who were massacred, however many they were, legends got out of hand about this. One source says that there were 14,000 children who were killed. Somebody else had it somewhere in the 80,000s. That seems obviously fantastical, obviously a made-up number, because Bethlehem was not that big. And even all its environs would not have yielded 80,000 boys under the age of two. That's a lot. That takes a big city to have that many. But however many there were, in Christ, there was hope for their restoration. The return from exile was held out to the people of Israel under the symbolism of resurrection in Ezekiel chapter 37. You see, here's the reality. Resurrection is the ultimate return from exile. 
Jesus was not killed by the seed of the serpent at this point. But the seed of the serpent did not stop trying, whether to trip him up by lies or to overwhelm him by violence. And ultimately, of course, he was crucified. And at that point, what would Rachel's weeping have been? But then he came back from exile. He rose from the dead. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we can be confident for these children from the environs of Bethlehem that they were gathered into his bosom, that he gently carried those who were with young. We can be confident that on the last day they will rise. And not just these children, the first to shed their blood for the name of Christ. In some ways, they've become the prototypical martyrs because the only reason they were killed was because of Jesus. They died for Christ in that sense. I think we can be confident that Christ died for them, that Christ took care of them, that they will rise at the last day. And not only those children, but all children who die as God's elect, who pass away in infancy, whether that's persecution, whether that's something else, some other cause, we can know that the Lord does not lose sight of them. Rachel may have refused to be comforted, but the Lord spoke immediately after saying, do not weep. There is comfort. There is hope. Well, we also go through sorrows. We also experience great heartbreak. And sometimes we're like Rachel. We think this is all there is. You're a son of my sorrow to the baby whose birth had killed her. Sometimes we refuse to be comforted. But there's Christ. There's the birth of this one. Yes, it brought tragedy. Yes, there was sorrow. But it also brought a hope, a light, a confidence that is deeper than all that sorrow. Jeremiah made the prophet, your children will return. And Christ returned. We can trust him with the sorrows, with the heartbreaks, with the confusions, the things we don't understand. I have no doubt it was an enormous challenge to those parents who lost a child to think, but at least Jesus got away. They were dealing with grief and heartbreak. I'm not saying it was easy, but I do say that in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Christ, in his promises, in his character, we do find comfort. We do find hope in the deepest sorrows. Of course, I include in that the loss of our own children. But it's not only the loss of our own children. There are other sorrows as well that cut very deep. But in all of them, what is our comfort? Oh, our comfort is in the living God. Our comfort is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our comfort is in who he is and what he does. Our comfort is in that he knows, that he cares, that he shepherds, and that he guides. Do you have a promise that nothing bad will happen? No, you don't. Do you have a promise that Christ will be with you? Yes, you do. Do you have a promise that he will make it all right in the end? Yes, you do. And in the light of that, you can persevere. In the light of that, you can give thanks. In the light of that, you can find joy and comfort in the midst of all the deepest 
earthly sorrows. The story of the birth of Christ is a story of joy, but it's a story of joy in the middle of tragedy. Hang on to that so that when your tragedies happen, you have that joy that cannot be taken away. Amen.